What happens when you stop seeing people? What happens when you stop seeing people behind bars as criminals and start seeing them as human beings? Welcome to Sentences, Storytellers Beyond Bars, the podcast where we explore the impact of the criminal justice system in our communities. Hi, this is Alfred. Lizette. This is Jose. And welcome to our third episode of Sentences. This one is going to be a little different. I'm pretty excited because this is a episode where we just kind of read some of the pieces from some of the men from Lancaster and then we talk about them. We dissect them. We, yeah, we kind of respond to see what we felt. I don't know. What do you guys? Um, uh, yeah, well, some of the pieces are a little long, so we're just going to uh, read some excerpts and uh, hopefully we can. Uh, put put their stories out there uh, so they're not just on the pages of the journal they're actually out there in some some sort of wave length <laughs> yes <laughs> I'm excited um, and also a little bit anxious maybe I am about like giving a voice to something um, and I'll be honest like I don't know what voice maybe they have so it's obviously an interpretation of something Oh, you um, haven't met any of the guys yet. Huh? I haven't met okay. anybody, so uh, I'm I'm a little bit anxious, but I'm looking forward to it. That's crazy. Yeah, you're right. Neither has Jose, I think. No, I've never met any of them. It's kind of like talking about a, a celebrity, and then, you know, we have this, like, idea of what they're like, and we've read their work, and we we know their story, and but we've never met them. Mm-hmm. And then that was my experience, kind of, the first time I met them. I was like, oh, my God, you're so-and-so? <laughs> um but we should probably check in first to see how we're doing, um, or I guess check in for this week. <laughs> if you, <laughs> I'm ready for spring break. <laughs> <laughs> Jose's rolling his eyes. Same here. Yeah. <laughs> hey, at least you guys get a spring break. I'm still here all week. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I have a day job, so I'm true. As yeah. far as a break goes, but at least I don't have to worry about crazy readings. Yeah. Oh, you do. You just on your own time. Yeah, we get to read our own our own books. Finally. Which I've ordered a couple, and uh, they're pretty short, so hopefully I can get through them in this week. So. And I also, we got some pretty good responses from the second episode that... <laughs> we don't have to go into it. I can tell you this out. Um, no, but we got some good responses. Um, I think it's great to hear people critically engage with what we're putting out there um one thing i think that one comment we got on facebook from a friend of mine was in regards to what jose brought up last episode with the periodicals and i think remind me what you said i'm not really sure but i use the word bad in relation to periodicals (laughs) (laughs) well there's a little bit more than that right i I, I I don't think think that's a word I, it was it was it was me saying that uh, uh, periodicals it was it's in you're inundated with all this information that it really it it gives you, you it gives you so much information that you can make an argument out of anything that you want. That yeah, that's you're right. that's what I what I uh, what I said and. And in regards to that, I, I thought that that was bad. 
and but but the the word bad wasn't qualified. Uh, for after being in that class a little longer, I can give a better explanation of why I think it's bad. Um, bad in regards to the. I guess you could give it a to use Marxist terms like modes of production, like who who owns the patent to making this paper. Uh, all the paper turns out it, it wasn't that many people, um, and then that paper is in the hands of a few that have a lot of money now because everybody's distributing periodicals, and then inside those periodicals you get stories like Uncle Tom's Cabin, where they're using a, uh, a stereotype of a, of a black man in order to pacify a, a black body. And now that story is disseminated across the nation at the time. And so there's a, there's a small amount of people making a lot of money from these stories, and some of these stories are problematic because of the way that they discriminate against a population that's historically been discriminated against. And they're still being discriminated against because they're not allowed to take hold of their own representation. So well, that's what I meant by bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, I th and I think the comment was in regards to the periodicals providing a space for voices that were traditionally marginalized, marginalized. right? Because they were so... Yes. Um, it's kind of like what the podcast is today, in a sense. Yes. Right. And, and I understand that that uh, it's it's in some way ironic because I I am participating in like a a new version of that through through podcasts, understanding that somebody makes money off of the, the Apple computer or whatever HP computer that's being used. Don't drop your name. And the microphones, <laughs> and the microphones that are being used, because even though even if I didn't drop the names, the actual use of them is expressing the name. So, so we're all just victims to the same. I wouldn't say victims. It's just you, if you don't recognize it, then it you can easily 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 gloss over these things and not realize that there's a problem with it. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's the danger too, right? Yeah. Because it's easy to kind of say, like, podcasting opens up a space for voices that mm -hmm. wouldn't otherwise in stories, right? And, and at the same time, it's kind of like the periodical where it could seem, like, overwhelming because there's so much content out there that yes. you're like, what? how do I make sense of all this? Um, so then how? why do we... Why do people participate? And I, I don't really remember too much about the periodical culture, so when that person, when my friend was commenting on how they provided spaces for marginalized voices and women, you know, to be to enter the public publishing world, um, how did that happen, and how is that different from like major other major publishing practices at the time? I think, and <laughs> and uh, I have trouble talking about this because when I talk about it, it becomes ironic because I am part of the institutions that, that study these things and kind of benefit from what these periodicals have done, which is create uh, voices for, let's say, 
for women. Right. For for some for well, equal let's be rights. Clear, a very specific type of women, especially at the time. Right. It was white women, mm-hmm. middle class at the very least. Um, so that's contextualized there. Um, yes. The periodicals so, that we're studying now. So there's a difference in that sense between who has access to yeah. podcasting versus who has access to the publishing mm-hmm. periodical? It's it's uh, who, who has access to the audience. And who has access to the audience has a lot to do with the publishers and the printers. Because um, if they don't like what you're saying, they're not going to print your stuff. So let's say a magazine like, uh, which is a Spanish magazine, uh, let's say that's not going to get that much circulation in the United States of America because they're going to think that there's no audience for it when there's so many people here that speak Spanish. Or maybe they'll only allow a telenovela Mm -hmm. magazine when you could easily be getting a magazine from, let's say, La Casa de de Cultura from from Cuba, something like that, which is, that's problematic in its own, in its own right, but there, that's being blocked. And so Mm -hmm. my thing is there's a political element to it Mm -hmm. that shouldn't be glossed over. Right. There's a sort of, there's a sort of cost to these voices gaining access, Mm -hmm. right? I think that's what it is for me, um, like the struggle that I'm having with the class. Um, that we're, we, we don't gloss over it, but we don't really delve into the political aspects of that. So yeah, we're reading Uncle Tom's Cabin, and yes, you know, this is important because it's a white woman who's a, a woman who's like finally, you know, she's being published and her work is being circulated and people are reading it and it's gaining this sort of mass like uh, readership um, and it's serialized through, what is it, 42, 43 issues? Mm-hmm. Um, so she's doing that, but she's also almost appropriating, right? The story of a black man to tell her story, to sort of moralize these concepts of what it is. She's so, capitalizing on yeah, the black body yeah, in another way. Right? Thank you, Alfred. Yes. yes. She's capitalizing it on it in order to promote Christian values, which is what she believes in, which was a, something that was, I guess, prominent in, in in the United States and at I the think, time. Uh, you can say that about anything, right? Like anything that gets published, any magazine has its own sort of, what is it, like statement of purpose or whatever it is that they're doing. So they're going to be selective about what's being published and who gets to be on it and what voices are going to be heard. And I think that's a problem, right? Like you have to compartmentalize your your identity to fo- forward some sort of ar- argument or to promote or to yes. help further some sort of str- of struggle. And um, so and so the the problem I'm having is I'm hearing these arguments in class and I feel like I can't move forward with those arguments because you're not dealing with the stereotypes that the arguments are based on. Like you you can't make arguments of sympathy if you think that black bodies are supposed to be passive. Mhm. Because mm-hmm. that's the only way you could sympathize with them is if they're they're not allowed to to show anger for their own position. Mm-hmm. That's that's just troubling. And when she, and she does have a character, um, George Harris, who does ex- express that anger, but it's 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 manipulated in a way where he's expressing his anger in a patriotic way which I think 
is a little strange. And maybe there were Af uh, uh, African-American or, or black men at the time that did feel that way. But, but that's a whole other issue. That's a whole other issue. Right. But we don't know because that we we didn't get his voice. Yeah, and then the voices that we do get published, right? Slave narratives are follow a very specific uh, narrative arc, right? Yes. And uh, there's a lot of uh, what do you call them? Not traits, characteristics, tropes. Yeah, aspects that parts whatever to a narrative uh -huh. slave narrative. But I think that could be said about any civil rights struggle in U.S. history where they're yes. taken in steps, right? And yeah. those initial steps are definitely problematic in a bunch of different ways, but they mm -hmm. kind of help set the foundation for something larger. And I think you're right. We should find a different way to move civil rights um, fights in a different way, right? Like we don't have to compartmentalize or take baby steps, essentially. Like I remember one of my friends was working with... Um, with the uh, immigrant rights group, but the person that they were using, using, I say using, and I just said it, and it's, and it's right, they were using this person um, to, as their spokesperson, but this person was a queer person of color, trans, undocumented, right? And so it's, it's they're not doing one struggle at a time. This person's essentially embodying all these things that need to be brought to you know um there are people fighting for justice right are kind of embodied in this one person and the argument for that group that that she was kind of the face of was if they can accept this person then they can essentially accept everything that she represents which i don't think happened right and so mm -hmm. we have one extreme where we take baby steps and then we have another extreme where we have this everything all for one and ne neither of them seem to be working i don't know well, for me, is it, it's it's a there's like a larger um, discussion that, that needs to be made about just the language itself. Um, uh, of course, we're, we're we're graduate students and we take a theory class and we're told about something like. Uh, deconstruction and there are these binaries and you can do this to dismantle binaries but then we go back and we look at these binaries and we don't discuss them as artificial constructs and how they how they've like become anchored in history and how this artificialness grows yeah, yeah. How the how the artificialness becomes real through its growth in in time. It's solidified. It's kind of grandfathered into this. Like, so it's grand. Uh -huh. Instead, we're we're. I feel like we're, we we gloss over the to use the, the I guess we gloss over the the God notion, the the genesis of it, in order to understand its history. But I think the the genesis of it is so much can tell us so much more about how arguments are built on it throughout, throughout history. history if we were actually break down that mm -hmm. that, that uh, how, center how do you deal with like the very real implications of that imagined history in present day well 
I mean, not, yeah, not that. And this is like a kind of a rhetorical question, right? Like, you're. I think you're absolutely right. We definitely need to spend more time on the genesis of the, these imagined binaries or constructs or social st- uh, structures. Yeah, it, it's it's what we what we do is something that in the in the book that I gifted you. Uh-huh. It, Which it's is been, it's been, <laughs> it was Alfred's birthday a, a few days ago, so. <laughs> None of us knew. (laughs) (laughs) We all hung out with him. But uh, it's a book that I've been reading, and one of by uh, Toni Morrison, "Playing in the Dark," and she gives she she gives names to the to to these problems about not facing uh, these stereotypes, and one of them is she actually says that that uh, American like U.S. literature is based on an economy of stereotypes. Like you need these in order to, to build the moral compass of your white character. He's either the, the bad slave owner or he's the good slave owner or he's the, the good shopman who, who uh, gives a little extra to, to his black workers. It, there's always some sort of relation like that, that deals with, with with uh, the black body and the white ideal, and one of the things that she says is there's there's a like a people try to make this an allegory, and when you do that, mm. it makes it timeless. Mm. And but it's not timeless. It's it's definitely not timeless. Mm-hmm. There's you could go back and find instances where people were starting to think these things about the other and then if you if you look at it that way then of course all the all that's happened through history seems a lot more atrocious but it is because people died and suffered and they still do mm-hmm. and yeah that's so I'm at a place where I, I don't feel comfortable in class because of that yeah I can imagine Oh man. Okay. Sorry, I'm like quiet. This is how I sit in class too, because I listen to all these arguments and I understand like that sense of, like maybe futility, right? Like we're in there and like I, I we have these conversations outside of this recording, uh, Jose and I, and and I can see these things too, and I see how excited we all get in class, like and I say we because I'm part of the class, right? But how excited some of these conversations are and these perspectives, and it just seems to, we don't get into the nitty gritty of things. Um, and so it's interesting to talk about contextualizing these stories within the context of, of that magazine that it's published in, right? How it's serialized here. What's happening around here? Okay, yeah, what's happening right here? Like, let's get so, into that stuff. So the way I see it is I feel like in, we're, we're in this uh, Marlowe uh, situation where we're seeing like, oh my God, there's this beauty in the darkness and this and that. We're aestheticizing it without actually getting to the core of the nugget, like the actual, the, the bodies that, that are being, that are not being represented. That we're just taking an image of them and trying to, to, I don't know, find, find some sort of rhetorical value in it. And maybe it's because I'm in the wrong, in the wrong field, because that seems to be what literature does. Mm, mm. Um, okay. 
but there's always there's always the struggle between um, representation and, and literature. It seems like you, you like. Um, so sorry, go on. No, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I was gonna say Marlowe, like Christopher Marlowe from the from Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness. Like he's he's the liberal character in the book because he sees he sees these black bodies as I guess. He has a deeper. He feels like he has a deeper understanding of them, and because of that, the other explorers that he's in the Congo with are seen in a in a in a negative light. But in re in reality, he's still in the same boat with them going through the river. It's not like he's any different. And I feel like I'm on that boat with all these people in class. We're still going through that river, and we're not a, we're not letting the people talk that are that we're exploring, I guess. That's, that's the, that's, that's the feeling I get. Yeah. And I, I don't know what to do with that feeling. Man, that's frustrating. That's, that's, um, that was a really good metaphor, I think, for what, this is a good example of how to change that, right? We're here kind of trying to be the megaphone for these voices mm -hmm. that are, kind of stuck in a similar situation yeah most of them also black bodies um and i think that's really important that we're very aware and we're very conscious of the fact that we're not trying to that we're just trying to be the, the microphone in a sense the megaphone or amplify these voices we're not trying to represent them in any way yeah one one of the things that i always found interesting is in the in the beginning of like epic poems the poet always evokes the fact that he is a microphone, that he isn't uh, the person speaking, that he is just there as some sort like the of vehicle. vehicle for the story. And um, I hope that what we're doing here is, is like that. But of course, I am not going to be able to always... Um, judge that because once things are out there yeah. things are out there yeah and then it becomes a different thing and then hopefully someday somebody will marlow me and tell me that i'm an idiot for doing this thing and that they can uh find a better way but right now it seems like this is the way to do it well that's part of it right yeah. i feel like that's very important that you go into this knowing that someone's going to eventually react to this and respond yeah. to this. And you're just kind of entering a conversation. You're not putting anything out there that's exactly. new. I'm just contributing to this existing conversation, hoping that someone's going to want to converse with me, right? want to dialogue, create a dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's awesome. I think, and that's also painful. And it's also very, uh, emotionally and physically taxing to kind of enter a, dis a discussion that's fraught with all these racial race relations, identity politics, yeah. right? Because it's a, so much easier to to not engage with that critically, right? To stay out of the, the to stay out of the real world and stay in like the literary mm -hmm. world. Yes, very much so. Sorry, yeah, um, I've had these conversations with a few of my professors recently where I kind of asked that question, like, what does any of what we're doing in the classroom matter if we can't take it outside, right? Like, why study these pieces and just talk about 
their form and their aesthetic and the characters and the stereotypes and the tropes and the themes and the this and the that when you're going to walk out of the classroom and like what do you do with that right so so like that's the question that i keep asking right like how can we take this story that we aren't discussing through politics or the the race or, or the nitty-gritty that i said earlier right um and i don't think we can like i feel like there has to be some sort of or maybe i'm being harsh but there has to be some sort of intersection between what we're reading and what is going on outside because times as much as we progress and as much as things have changed race is still a big issue class is still a big issue and we deal with all of that outside of the classroom so why read this literature and just kind of let it go to waste in just aesthetic form and papers and scholarship and like re what are we doing it for yeah i forgot some who quoted this or who um coined this term but it's like you start building up this mental garbage, right? Because you start, you start <laughs> collecting intellectual garbage. I don't know okay, what, what the word is, right? But you start kind of collecting all this information from reading all these books. Because I have friends who like read a book a week and are like pretty uh, vocal about like, you know, they're so, they read all these books. And so, you know, a couple of my friends who do that are like poets and they, they kind of, and writers and they kind of, um, they use that content and mm -hmm. manifest in their own writing. And it's great, right? Because they're also content creators in that sense entering this larger discussion but yeah I, I don't I think it's really kind of pretentious and annoying for someone to be like I read all these books and I do all this stuff and yet they're not engaging in with like the real the real problems in the world mm -hmm. in any way I just seems kind of I have more the older I get the more of a problem I have with that you yeah. know and that's why one of the reasons why it pushed me to kind of get get involved with words in cage and get involved in a way that I can engage with what I'm learning with what bugs me in class in a way that's going to create some sort of real change although small but even if it like affects one or two per, you know people that I work with or even if this podcast only reaches like one person or two people right like that that's one or two more people than before I even entered this discussion mm -hmm. so yeah yeah I mean, I think that's uh, words uncaged is a, is like a, a hybrid of of uh, I guess taking that taking making that leap, mm -hmm. taking those things that that literature we see in literature, and letting them impact the community around us instead of keeping them in the classroom, mm -hmm. and that's that's why I even though I I feel like um, there is there is that problem of re representation because we there these men are not allowed men and women are not allowed to to voice themselves like we can't have them here maybe someday we'll have some of them participate in, in the Call podcast in. Yeah. Um, but for now what, what we can do is we can read their writing or or uh, maybe play their music if uh, if we, I know there's some of some of them are musicians. So mm -hmm. if we can be that vehicle, then I think that's great because it's it's taking that that frustration that that uh, we share in class and uh, breaking out of the class and taking those things that we feel and um, and I'm sure other others feel. And showing that there is a different way to do it. It doesn't have to stay that in that like frustration bubble. Yeah. 
I think that's a really good, this is a really good opportunity to transition into, I think we have time for one piece, which is totally fine. It's one more piece than we, we planned on. Um, but I also want to kind of remind people that we will have uh, men and women who were formerly incarcerated come in and tell their own stories. So even though they're not car- incarcerated anymore, it's them themse- they themselves telling their own story um, which is why I think it's really important for us to provide this space. You know, not just a written word through the journal. But yeah, go ahead, Lizette. I think Lizette has a, a piece that she'd like to share. Yeah. Um, so uh, this piece is called... Uh, it, we got an influx of submissions for the journal, and there's some stuff that... This is one of the pieces that came across my way. Um, it's called To Imagine Angels, and it's written by John... Puruganan. I'm really hoping I pronounced that right. And if I don't, I'm really sorry. Please, somebody <laughs> correct <Okay>. me <laughs> if you can. Um, but yeah, so. And then uh, where, where is this from? Who is he? Where is he at? He is in Lancaster. He is one of Dr. Roy's uh, students. Um, and I think he was published in the Words and Cage Journal last year. I'm not too sure. But if not, I know you can find some of his work online. At the words and cage dot com. Yeah, words and cage dot com. <laughs> yes. Um, so if you get a chance anytime when you're sitting on the toilet with your phone, <laughs> log on, give it a read. But yeah, so this is called To Imagine Angels. I have lived behind bars for almost 30 years now. My fourth year in brought times where I didn't know if I'd see a fifth, moments when it was difficult to care, one way or the other. One of those times was on a cold autumn morning here in this desert valley. I sat alone at the north end of the yard, waiting. I worked on the yard crew. The day before, Duke, the inmate lead man, and I had words. A petty dispute over a water spout turnkey, of which he was in charge, and which I used every day to complete my assigned tasks. The details of our moronic exchange are not worth repeating. Suffice it to say, agitated Syrians went unchecked as I waited Duke and the water key the following morning. The fact that he was late had me nursing fresh frustration with mounting anger from the previous day. Years before, in the county jail, as the cocaine left my system, the savagery of my crime began sinking in. I'd killed a man, and the horrific reality of my atrocious actions went far beyond committing the ultimate criminal act. I caused immeasurable pain and sorrow in the lives of everyone who loved the man whose life I took. Together, with that is what my unforgivable crime did to my own loved ones, especially to my children. It crushed them. I broke their hearts. As it is often the case when a man realizes how far he has fallen, I long to distance myself from that person who brought such devastation, who caused so much grief. I knew I could never make up for what I did. Still, I vowed to live the rest of my days endeavoring to make amends, to become a better person, to restore my humanity. Of course, these thoughts were far from me as I waited for Duke that morning. My ego and self-righteous indignation fueled the thoughts of vengeance. I ignored my inner voice, telling me there had to be a better way of handling this. I'd resigned to give this guy what he'd been asking for all week. No sooner had my inner voice faded to a whispered sigh, sign that I heard another voice, and it wasn't in my head. It came directly from above me, the chirping of a bird, perched high up on the razor wire that topped the cinder block wall, was a parakeet, the same type I used to see at the pet shop when I was a child. With, with its egg yolk yellow feathered breast and vibrant aquamarine shaded rings, achingly incongruent, with this dreary, massive prison construct, it was like being visited by a tiny miracle. Hey, you, I said, and it chirped as if in response. I asked if it was here to see me, 
and the bird instantly chirped again. A measured, harmonious recital, as if it was trying to tell me something. I told it I'd been having a bad week and expressed my gratitude for its coming my way. We sent another lengthy, melodic response. You could easily mark it off as the imaginings of a lonely man condemned to life without the possibility of parole. But I'll be damned if that pretty bird's tone... But I'll be damned if the tone of that pretty bird's tweets didn't sound cheerful. The solid metal gate that fronted work exchange... The solid metal gate that fronted the work exchange building grinded open and outstepped Miss Owens, a guard. She saw me sitting on the cement walkway and the parakeet perched on the razor wire above me and cried out, look at that. At the sound of her voice, the bird flew off. It must have been someone's pet that had escaped its cage and strayed untold miles to sing a few notes of encouragement to me, a fellow cage dweller. Coincidence? Or was it something more? I noticed a distinct change in myself. My spirit felt uplifted, inexplicably cleansed in some odd way. Duke didn't show up for work that morning. I saw him later during yard program. Without any looks or prompting on my part, he came to me and summarily apologized, said he'd been having a bad week. I knew about bad weeks. He offered an outstretched hand and I shook it. Five months later, once again, my spirit had grown weary. And just as suddenly as the first time, another feathered creature found its way to me. I'd been up all night, missing my children, loathing myself for abandoning them, wallowing in misery, conjured demons of despair to taunt me through the sleepless hours. The last thing I remembered before nodding out and being jarred awake as chow release sounded over the PA system was the soft blue-gray glow of dawn illuminating the, the thin vertical rectangle window. I hadn't slept 10 minutes. Several hours later, I'd been to breakfast, made a yard crew appearance, came back to myself with the notion that I could still manage to get some writing done. I'd been sitting at my desk for I don't know how long, staring at the small LCD screen on my Smith Corona 200 typewriter when a fluttering motion in my peripheral caused me to raise my eyes to the six inch wide, four foot high window. Right outside the reinforced glass on the inclined ledge sat a baby owl. It seemed to be peering right at me, but had to be looking at its own image as the outside of the window was covered with reflection tape. No taller than the window was wide, the owl couldn't see me, but it could obviously hear me. It kept looking around at the sound of my voice, which came from behind its own reflection on the tape. I removed the typewriter, climbed on the desktop, sat cross-legged, and gazed at the tiny wonder. I'd never seen an owl around here. There are no trees in prison, and virtually no trees for miles beyond the fatal electrified fence. So where did it come from? Did it live in a nest? Was there a worried, frantic mama owl out there scouring the neighborhood? 45 minutes later, day room program in progress, several prisoners stopped by my cell. I presented my visitor. The ge this generated some excitement. Soon, I had a crowd gathered around my perforated iron metal door. door. Three and a half hours later, my very superstitious Vietnamese Sally returned from school. One look at the fledging in the window and he cried, bad luck, bad luck. Apparently, owls were bad omens in his culture. My suggestion to the country was not well received. He grabbed the shower gear and headed for the shower. It was a long shower. The owl was still perched on the ledge when my Sally came back. Thank goodness our building was first to be released for dinner, or the ordeal would, have, would be resolved before my Sally returned again. I stayed behind to prolong my vigil with the owl for as long as I could. By the time the upper tier of cells was released, with all the metal doors banging shut, 
My day-long companion had flown away. I had been grateful for his presence, though. I wasn't terribly saddened to see him go. He had to get on with his life, just as I had to get on with mine. The prison compound boasts 20 identical housing units, each containing 100 cells for a total of 2,000 identical cell windows. All these windows and the baby owl chose mine. Simply another coincidence? Possibly. But as, as with the parakeet's visit, I like to think the appearance of the owl was a result of a deliberate intention, romanticism and mysticism. It lends a great solace to believe that something sends a baby owl, a nocturnal creature, in the light of day to assure me I wasn't alone in my darkest hour before night. A quarter century later, these cold, hard walls are just as high. The razor-laced wire is every bit as sharp. The electric fence is deadly as ever. But when my spirit needs healing, I can still recall those feathered messengers, and it gladdens my heart to, ima to imagine angels truly do have wings. That's the end of the piece. So this is something that's possibly going to be published in this upcoming uh, Not in this one. Uh, we'll probably just end up posting it online. Um, but yes. Cool. I had a... There are certain words that stuck with me as, as you were reading it, um, like this, like fellow cellmate or fellow Sally. Sally is that what he said when he was describing the bird? Oh no, he used a very specific term. Let me see if I can find it. I think it's really powerful how he, when he resigned himself to like the bird to nature, that is when he felt most at peace. Right, even though he was stuck in this very sterile environment, and some of the language he uses is super powerful to describe, like the cement, um, the like the death, the the fatal electric fence. He says, I yeah. think. Yeah. He when he describes the the prison, it's a very like empirical. Like he gives measurements. Oh, you're right. How things are, how things are like, I guess constructed. How it's very constructed. As, as opposed to the, these delicate animals that come to, to visit him. And I just kept thinking about how everything was so encaged, right? Like the, the windows are like squares almost, mm. and then the cells are like boxes. And just this sort of, it just keeps building on to contrast sort of what you said, like that, that notion of the outside world where the birds are visiting and then where he is inside. And I think that like, like you're saying the very calculated, the very meticulous measurements that he uses to describe the prison helps to like forward this argument that um like the fluidity of outside of nature mm -hmm. is really kind of like i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say let me backtrack so i think i think i think it, there's there's like a, he sees the possibilities that he's not allowed to experience when he when he sees these birds fly in uh -huh. And like these these entities these these angels are allowed to be uh, ephemeral they're they're part of nature whereas he is very much enclosed in an artificial construct but he identifies with these like angels right because he knows that he is not artificial he is also a flesh like these animals perhaps and I go ahead no and I appreciate so much that he acknowledges that that anybody in the audience can be dismissive of it right like it could just be a bird it could just be this the guard but yes like a parakeet right and he's like he gives them such vivid characteristics and he says no 
Like this is what an angel looks like. So. I like how like the prison has to work so hard and be very deliberate to exist in this in nature. Yes. Right? Like they need to be so calculated. It needs to be so rigid and it needs to kind of reassert itself every day. Whereas kind of like the interaction with nature is almost accidental because mm -hmm. it's so natural, because it's so like that's the way it's, that's what's natural, not this prison. Right. And I think that's what I get out of this piece is like there's nothing natural about prison um, mm -hmm. or prisoners mm -hmm. or guards. Right. All they, all they do is spook like this nature. You know, like the guard did, right? She said, hey, look at that, and bam, you know? Um, yeah, I think this is a really, really powerful piece, and I really hope it makes it into some sort of print form. And if not, like Lizette said, it's going to be on the website, uh, wordsincage.com, which is, which is where all this work will eventually sh uh, mm -hmm. be. Um, and I like, you know, one more thing that before we end the podcast, I really like the fact that we're talking about these, discussing these written, these texts, you know, like we would discuss any other quote-unquote canonical text, you know, right? Helping legitimize uh, these stories or that these men or women have yeah, to share. Yes. I, I think because uh, these rhetorical moves that he made are very much rooted in his experience. It's not like they just live on the page. Um, that's uh, just something... Bring, to bring it, bring it back to the sterility of the classroom where we think re these rhetorical moves are stuck on the page or they're very much rooted in an experience of something and yeah if, if we if we allow people to to, to speak for themselves then the the rhetoric uh, gives a little more and just something sterile. Mm -hmm. And I think I like how the fact that it doesn't stick to any like one genre, right? Mm -hmm. I remember I forgot the name of the book that we read um, for the, like early American literature, and it was the first novel, quote unquote, novel written by an African American. Do you remember that? I know what you're talking about. But I don't remember the name of the book. And the novel that this that uh, yeah is it Clotel? Yeah. Is it Clotel? Yeah, it's Clotel. I forgot who wrote it. Um, and anyways, the discussion around the novel, it was, it was weird because it, it appropriates um, pieces from periodicals. It appropriates other people's stories, and it tries to, like, build this cohesive narrative, right? It tries to fit this very rigid definition of what a novel is, but it doesn't. It kind of betrays itself in the process of, of the narrative. And um, I think I was also at the time thinking, well, why is it? why do we call that a novel then? Why don't we just call it another slave narrative? Or, uh, you know, why don't we create some sort of other, you know? And um, oh yeah, Clotel by Williams, William Wells Brown. Um, and I think that I was still stuck in this idea of what a novel should be. And that, you know, it was an insult to this, this book, to to not count it amongst like the great novels right. or count it as a novel, right? Um, and treat it as such. And I think I realized that soon after that discussion. And, and that's the thing, right? It's never too late to admit that you're probably not, like the way you're thinking is probably not right or wrong or like yeah. it's probably not the best. It's a sign of growth, right? Right. Like, like it's, all it is. it's really hard to do, but it's mm -hmm. never too late to be like, oh shit, 
I'm wrong and then yeah. retrace like how do I uh -huh. yeah and that's what happened to me in that class because that was a book that I was like it's not a novel it's definitely because I had a very you know English major like I, this is what it's this is what it is not that you know um he uses the word I <laughs> but this is exactly what I like about the pieces that we'll be reading for in future episodes yeah. um we kind of expand that idea of what deserves to be uh, analyzed critically and mm -hmm. discussed mm -hmm. in in certain circles or whatnot. So, any other last thoughts before we close this? Um, I no. Uh, one thing is, uh, he did a good job, or not a not a good job, but uh, um, I don't want to use the, the word good job, but he he really brought us into the cell with him in his story like I felt like um, that bird made or the two birds the parakeet and the owl made the experience of being in a cell kind of um, uh, more visceral uh, because that's a very stark contrast it's something that's so so anchored to the ground and then something that can just fly away yeah. Yeah. Oh man, this is a really emotional episode. Yeah, it was. But I'm excited. This is great. I like to see this growth, this kind of I don't know, this discussion, this dynamic. It's changing. It's you can tell. Um all right, so thanks for checking in and listening to our episode. We will be back again. Our next episode is going to be featuring a guest. Um, and so that's the format from now on. It's going to be one episode where we kind of just break down a topic or we kind of just check in and then we read a piece and we talk about the piece. And then another episode is going to be where we kind of just interview somebody who's either been in prison, who's working with people who are incarcerated um, or providing some sort of resource for reentry. And that's how we'll build our archive of resources. So yeah, thanks again. And again, I oh, can't even remember. What what's, what do you always say? Check it. Check our uh, check our Facebook. Ugh, Make sure word? to check us out on Facebook. <laughs> Wait, we're not on Facebook. No, no we're not. On Facebook. <laughs> check us out on Instagram. Our handle is Sentences Podcast. Uh, find us on SoundCloud. Listen to us on iTunes. Give us good reviews. Tell your friends. Tell your mom. Tell your cousin. Tell your sister. Yeah, your, uh, your, <laughs> your tios, everybody. And listen once, listen twice. Yes. <laughs> and if you have any questions or any comments to any of the episode, anything you hear, um, we appreciate all the Facebook comments, but we also maybe want to encourage you to use our email. That way we have an archive of these questions and we might have some sort of Q&A or listener letter yes. uh, episode at the end at some point. So that email is sentencespodcast at gmail.com. So, yeah, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Right. Bye. Bye.